Would you pray with me? Grant, O Lord, that I may not speak with plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. What are we doing here? I know that you're sitting in the pews and I'm up here speaking, which may mean that you're just settling in for a nice nap. But in all seriousness, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what exactly are we doing here? What actually is the church? I think this is a question that is typically not asked by most, but it is an incredibly important question. The Bible, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, offer many beautiful images and metaphors for what the church really is. One such metaphor is that the church is the family of God. The church is first and foremost a people. The church is a family, one that is made up of brothers and sisters from all kinds of places and, and times in human history, but they're not from physical descent. The church is a kind of family that you must be adopted into, adopted by God the Father through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a spiritual and a royal family. The church is also said to be a body. It's a living, breathing organism whose head is Jesus. It is made up of many members who all have different parts to play, but unlike a human body, every part of this body from the more insignificant parts that seem significant, whether you're an eye or a, a hand or a mouth, all the way down to the more seemingly insignificant parts, like the tonsils. If you're a doctor, you can explain to me what in the world the tonsils are for. I have no idea. But the point is, whether you are an eye or a hand or a pinky toe or a tonsil, in God's church, you are all indispensable to the life of the body. Another metaphor for the church that we see in Scripture is that God's people are a building. We see that metaphor actually at the very end of our First Corinthians reading. Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to go into that metaphor of a building later on in chapter 3. The fascinating part about this metaphor of the church as a building is that Paul saw this building as no ordinary building. He saw it as a temple. Because dwelling inside of this building of the people of God is God himself. Often we tend to think of a, a place much like this one as a temple, but the staggering claim of the New Testament is that God's people are the temple. When we gather together once a week to offer our thanks and praise to Him, to hear His word preached and read and to feast at His table, it is like the walls and the floors and the ceilings and all the furniture of the temple coming together. That's why what we are doing right now is so important and so different from everything else that we do. Sunday worship when, is when God promises to be present inside of His temple, which is the gathering of His people. 
Well, in addition to these images of the church as a family, a body, and a temple, our passage in 1 Corinthians 3 gives us yet another metaphor for the church. It's a metaphor that I think is less common and less known among the church today. Paul says in verse 9 of our Corinthians reading that the church is like God's field. It's a metaphor that dominates the the entire passage that was read. And so it is a metaphor, uh, this metaphor of the church is what I want to focus on with you this morning. This metaphor of God's field. It served an important purpose for Paul because everything that he had said up to this point is based on this metaphor. Everything that was happening in Corinth Uh, There was a lot of trouble that there was there. There's trouble also in our churches today. And he believed that if they and if if we could simply grasp the meaning of this metaphor of the church as God's field, then their problems and our problems might be remedied. So what I want to do this morning is offer three lessons that we learn from this image of the church as God's field. Three lessons for life as God's field. The first lesson for those living as God's field is that God's people are meant to grow. This is an obvious but important point. Fields are places of growth. The New Testament is filled with agricultural metaphors like this one, and, and all of them reinforce this idea of organic growth. Jesus taught using fig trees and vines and branches, fruit, soil, and seeds. This was because the natural world in general and and the agricultural world in particular was something that was far more a, a part of their everyday life, life on the other side of the 17th century. You see, after the Industrial Revolution, machines have enabled human beings to become more disconnected from the land in the process of food and farming. And sociologists and historians show that this is the reason why, by and large, we've become so naturalistic as a society. The wonder of growth and and an awareness of forces beyond our control have caused us to miss out on the power that these agricultural metaphors had in the Bible. Fields were places of growth or else entire civilizations would be wiped out. Growth was absolutely essential. And the kind of growth that's referred to here is more qualitative than quantitative. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've become a a consumer society focused on mass production. But the image of growth here is not of the, the size of the field expanding so much as the seeds themselves sprouting and growing and producing good fruit. Why did Paul think this was important for the church in Corinth? Well, he says in verse 1, but I, brothers, and that word both entailed men and women, so we could say both, uh, but I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Part of the problem in the church in Corinth, according to Paul, is that they had not grown up as they ought. A baby is a a cute and adorable thing to behold. But a 30-year-old who acts like a baby is a travesty. The root of the Corinthian problem, according to Paul, is that they hadn't grown up. And this is a perennial 
issue in the church. Let me just make it uh, personal and ask you this simple question right now. Are you content with where you are currently in your spiritual life? Are you content with your level of involvement in the life of God's people? Are you content with your current depth of love for Jesus Christ? Are you content with your current grasp on God's word? I'm talking about a contentedness that feels no need for growth. You see, we live in a city much like Corinth. Charleston is an affluent port city with lots of culture. We're a city filled with folks who are hungry to climb the social ladder. We no doubt have a desire to grow in in many ways. Think of the growth that we demand for ourselves and for our children. We will sacrifice thousands and thousands of dollars and years and years of our time on our educational growth. We work at a breakneck pace, more hours than any other society has ever worked in the history of humanity in order to grow materially and financially so that our children may have it better than ourselves. We are a people with a steadfast commitment to our physical growth and health. We are conscious of what we eat and we exercise regularly so that our bodies grow up to be beautiful and stay that way as long as they can. And in whatever free time is left over, we fill up our calendars with athletics and music lessons and all other things that round out our cultural and social growth. Now, none of these are necessarily bad, but what good is it if in devoting ourselves to this kind of growth, we remain infants in Christ? Jesus Christ did not come to be an add-on in our lives. We were not meant so much to invite Jesus into our lives as to have our lives revolve around him. The first lesson Paul wants the church to learn is that God's field was meant to grow. And it was Paul's great task as a minister that he would see to the church's growth as much as he could. He said in Ephesians 4 that the whole point of ministry was for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus himself. But here's the ironic bit. The church in Corinth thought they were growing. And that takes us to the second lesson that Paul has for the church. His second lesson for life as God's field was that true spiritual growth is measured by God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. Paul says that he could not address the Corinthian church as spiritual people, but as babies in Christ, because despite what they thought about themselves, they hadn't grown up. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. That phrase, of the flesh, means operating according to one's sinful nature. Some translations translate it as worldly. Paul is telling the Corinthian church that they were and indeed still are spiritually immature because they are operating on the basis of the world's values instead of God's. They were being driven by their worldliness, not their godliness. And how did their childish worldliness manifest itself? 
He says in verse three, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Jealousy and strife were rampant in the Corinthian church. It is interesting that these exact same words come up in Galatians 5, that popular passage of Paul where he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Paul gives a a fuller catalog of the works of the flesh there, or evidences of their worldliness. He says that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And if you think Paul is just rattling off whatever comes to his mind about worldliness, John Stott has noted that these works of the flesh fall in four major categories. They fall under sexuality, religion, society, and drink. And Paul will get at the Corinthians' sexual immorality and their idolatry and their drunkenness later in 1 Corinthians, but he begins by addressing their works of the flesh in terms of how they operate and relate to one another. You see, they were full of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And we know exactly the situation that was going on He says in verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You see, the Greek world in general, and Corinth in particular, was enamored with worldly wisdom and fantastic oratory. There was a celebrity culture uh, among the great debaters and the speakers of the age. There was a, a cult of the personality The speakers that they liked the most were the ones that used the techniques of the schools. They were those who were trained in rhetoric, whose message boasted of of magnificent things. The more swagger that a speaker had, the more they liked him. The more he blew his own trumpet, the more they admired him. The more he used language that was skillfully intended to elicit an emotional response, the more they fawned over him. Public speaking was an entertainment industry. It was a cutthroat social hierarchy where clever rhetoric and sophisticated speech won the day. Teachers developed an impassioned following, uh, which of course produced numerous factions and quarreling. Now today's Super Bowl Sunday, and it's not too much of a stretch, I think, to say that the teachers back in Corinth functioned a whole lot like how sports teams and and athletes function in our day. Evidently, the church in Corinth had become riven with strife and was looking just like the world around them because it had adopted the same values. The church had splintered themselves off into partisan groups, each aligning with their person of choice. Apparently there was a Paul group and they identified with Paul because he was the first minister in the church in Corinth. Then when Paul left, he was succeeded by Apollos and we're told in Acts 18 that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit and spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus. So there's a group who liked Paul, there's a group who liked Apollos, there was, um, we learn in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that there was also a group who liked the Apostle Peter. There was even a group who didn't look to any figure in the church whatsoever. And it amazes me just how real and fresh the scriptures are because this could easily describe our day today. 
Some like the new minister. Some really miss the old minister. Some care for the minister down the street. People gathered around ministers they like and they form divisions and sometimes they break the church apart. Now we need to note that Paul isn't always against division, actually. He was the first one to encourage believers to break away from false teaching, but that's not what's going on here in Corinth. Paul doesn't call Apollos a false teacher. In fact, he calls him a fellow worker. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, he calls him a brother that he he tried to send back to the church in Corinth. The problem is not that the teachers were creating division, but that the members of the church were. They were being just like the world around them. They were following the cult of the personality. No doubt many probably liked Apollos' style and eloquence because that's what garnered points in their world. So how does Paul seek to correct the worldliness of the Corinthian church? How does he seek to change their appetites from a worldly diet to a wholesome diet? Well, there's a French proverb And if I were Brian McGreevy or Mark Bouton, I'd say it in French, but I can't, so I'll just say it in English. It goes like this. Appetite comes with eating. Appetite is developed by the act of eating. And so in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul already sought to change their worldly appetite by feeding them with the gospel. According to this agricultural analogy that we're looking at, Paul goes back to the true seed that he first planted. In the Bible, the seed is the word of God. It is the gospel. And so Paul, back in chapter 1, combats their worldliness with with the gospel. And he sums up his entire message in chapter 1, verse 18, with saying that his message was the word of the cross. For Paul, the cross of Jesus Christ combats worldliness because it flips the world's values on its head. He says that this word of the cross is is foolishness to the world because what the world valued above all else was self-advancement and self-promotion. It valued the grand displays of celebrities. It valued sophisticated debaters who could rouse an audience with their wisdom and speech and then bask in their own glory. And Paul tells them, you want to know what real wisdom is? Do you want to know what real greatness is? Look at the cross. The cross is the antithesis of self-promotion. It's the opposite of jockeying for power or prestige. The world understands greatness as being center stage, in the limelight, at the top of the podium. God sees greatness as being on the cross, enduring humiliation and pain and scorn and mockery in the service of others. That was greatness for God, and that was Paul's message. And the ironic truth was that Paul's milk was of the same substance as his meat. The cross was never something that Paul moved beyond, but he just went further and further into it. The amazing thing about the cross of Christ is that it is something that even the youngest among, among us can digest, and yet even the angels in heaven and saints who will dwell with God eternally face to face will never fully exhaust its riches. We are told relatively little of what heaven's going to be like, but this we do know, that God's people will feast forever on the unending wonders of the cross. 
It was because the Corinthian church had forgotten the true seed, the milk and the meat of the gospel, the word of the cross, that they were worldly. The standards and measurements of how the world defines growth and success had subtly crept into their hearts. My friends, has it done so for us? Have we immersed ourselves in the word of the cross that the values of God's kingdom just seep out of us? Or have we so immersed ourselves in the world that its standards and definitions of success come as second nature? A final lesson that Paul would have us learn from this metaphor of the church as God's field is that God alone makes things grow. The Corinthian church and their worldliness had splintered into factions, each with its own minister, the champion of their group. And in verses 5 through 9, Paul uses this metaphor in order to expose their folly. You see, they had misunderstood the role and the relative worth of their party heads. They had come to assign way too much value to the minister because they misunderstood the true identity and status of God's ministers. So he says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Notice he doesn't say who is Apollos or who is Paul, but rather what? The focus is on the role, the function of the minister in order to combat the culture, uh, the cult of the personality and the celebrity pastor. We could ask the same question today of the ministers that you and I adore. What is Billy Graham or what is Tim Keller? We just had a conference on C.S. Lewis. What is C.S. Lewis? Or maybe to bring it a bit closer to home for us here at St. Philip's, the, the recent rectors. Who, what, what is Rennie Scott? What is Jim Hampson? What is Hayden McCormick? What is Jeff Miller? What is Andrew, Brian, and Bill? What is Justin Hare? One word, Paul says, servants. Servants. Instruments of God, mere tools in the hands of the Almighty through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. In Corinth, Paul had come and he planted the seed of the gospel and his successor, Apollos, watered that seed. But the focus here is on the Lord because he is the only one who can make things grow. Paul emphasizes the supremacy and the, the primacy of God in order to make two very important points. In verse 7, he notes that on the one hand, this completely relativizes the worth of the minister. He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They're nothing. God is everything. As one commentator put it, the point Paul is making destroys the Corinthian factions because each group loses its party's head. They had overvalued their respective leaders by putting them on a pedestal, so Paul preaches the gospel and it restores Jesus back to his rightful place at the top. All the credit, all the praise, all the focus is on God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. That was the phrase of the reformers. God is the source of all life, and he must be the object always of our gaze. But Paul makes another point in verses 8 and 9. While God alone causes the growth, he nevertheless bestows upon all those serving him the incredible honor of being his fellow workers. 
Paul sets the record straight by showing that he and Apollos, they're not rivals, they're not competitors. They're God's fellow workers. They're co-laborers working for the same goal, tending God's field so that it would produce a rich harvest. That's the very opposite of the jealousy and the strife that is in our day and in the Corinthian church. You see, in all of our heart of hearts, we are all prone to the same sort of jockeying that the, the Corinthian church was doing for position. And ministers can be the absolute worst at this. But Paul doesn't just give the command to rejoice with those who rejoice. He lives it out himself. The temptation's always there for us to rejoice in the setbacks of others because it means that we're advancing just a little bit further. But Paul says, when you see yourself as God's fellow worker, laboring aside one another for a common purpose, then you can actually rejoice with those who rejoice because their success means your success. Paul is absolutely marvelous, is he not? And in one breath, he calls himself nothing. And in the next, he calls himself God's fellow worker. He both thinks nothing of himself and everything of himself at the same time. And do you know that every Christian ought to have that same exact mentality? Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, he has placed a call on your life to serve him in every area of your life, your job, your marriage, your parenting, your schooling. Paul is incredibly humble because on the one hand, he knows that he isn't responsible for the ultimate outcome. We can plant and water and God's service all we want, but unless God causes the growth, nothing's gonna happen. And yet, on the other hand, Paul is outrageously bold because he knows that he's been given a task from God. And he's not ultimately accountable to his friends or his congregation or to anyone else, but he knows he's ultimately accountable to God. And so he's bold. He's assertive. He's daring. He both takes his work very seriously and at the same time doesn't take himself too seriously. He pours himself out with every fiber of his being. He's bold enough to speak the truth, to give of himself till it hurts, and yet he goes to sleep at night like a baby because he knows that God is ultimately responsible for the outcome. God alone causes the growth in his field, and he bestows on all his servants the incredible dignity of being his co-laborers. My friends, may we take these lessons that Paul gives us to heart. May we truly desire to, to grow up spiritually. May we measure that growth according to God's wisdom and not the world's. And may we boldly serve him with all that we are in every area of our lives and trust that he will cause his field to grow and produce a good fruit. Amen.